0: you should be just as excited to come to church as you should be to watch the Super Bowl. So uh, at the end of your pastor's sermon, pour Gatorade over his head. But uh, um, I'm going to avoid that. (laughs) Anyway, um, but uh, this morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 2. And as you make your way there, let me... Just introduce Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 16 and what that's about. Um, You may remember, if you uh, think back to Sunday school or perhaps to a service here, uh, the story of the prodigal son. Um, That's the name everybody gives to that story. And the prodigal certainly does get the lion's share of the ink. Well, if you remember, the prodigal son is the boy who tells his father, essentially, Dad, I wish you were dead already. Give me my inheritance. Give me what's coming to me. And shock of shocks, uh, he gets it from his father. He is given all of the inheritance that he is due and the younger son goes off to a far country to blow it all on one long hedonistic party. He essentially goes to Vegas until he runs out of money. And he's the boy who only goes back to the father, if you remember, when the only other choice is eating out of the trough with the pigs that he is feeding. Now, I have never been that hungry in my entire life. Amen? Living in, here in America, I doubt any of us have ever been that hungry that we looked at what the pigs were eating out of the trough and we thought, "Hmm, appetizers." No, that doesn't occur to us, right? So that is—I'm going to go on record and say that's that's a that's a high degree of hunger when that that looks like a good idea. But he's also the boy who, after he thinks about this, he thinks this through, and he says, "You know." This is stupid. I could go home to dad. And even if I lived as one of his hired servants, I would live better than I'm living right now, barefooted and starving and competing with the pigs for food out of the trough. But if you remember, he, when he gets home, he reconciles with his father. He comes to peace and the father has this enormous party for him remember kill the fatted calf and they have veal and they enjoy it right they have this giant party there's a huge celebration he gets sandals on his feet the father's robe put around his shoulders and they celebrate but there's another son An older son, an older brother. And that boy did not go off and squander his inheritance on party girls and beer. Instead, he stayed home. And his self-righteous heart sought his father's approval based on his own obedience. And he resented the father's reconciling love for his younger brother, the hedonist. And at the end of the story, you find the judgmental, arrogant, self-righteous son has cut himself off from the father's love, and he winds up just as separated from the father at the end as the prodigal was at the beginning. Do you remember? So, Jesus' story invites us to ask this question, which of the boys truly... Is the lost son. Was it the. What, it wasn't the hedonistic prodigal, was it? No, because at the end of the story, he winds up reconciled to his father at the center of a party celebrating that he who was dead has come to life again. No, the lost boy was the self righteous kid who outwardly looked good, but in his heart really didn't love his father, but only viewed him as a means to gain what he wanted. And this little story that Jesus tells makes it clear that there are two kinds of sinners, aren't there? There are, and both of them can wind up separated from the father by their sin, but some are hedonists. Some just decide uh, to do what uh, David Crosby of Crosby, Sills, and Nash said, to let their freak flag fly. They're just going to do whatever. If it feels good, we're doing it. and, And my desire for it is its own justification. And then there are those who are more like the older brother kind of sinners. And last, you know, last time I was with you in the pulpit here, we looked at the first kind of sinners, the sinners like the prodigal. Uh, chapter 1, verses 18 to 32 talks about how these people just basically go as hard away from God as they can possibly go in every possible way they can think of, and they even invent a few more. But there's another kind of sinner, too. And it's the older brother type. And it's the one that we see in Romans chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. So if you've got your Bible there, I want to show you these folks. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You know, there's a great temptation as you read chapter 1, particularly the last several verses of chapter one to read that and go you know I look nothing like that I'm not an idolater I'm not just going all out pursuing my lusts I'm not uh, insolent and wicked and disobedient to my parents and I'm not I'm not a terrible person in fact I'm pretty good as a matter of fact and I can't believe that people actually do the kinds of things that Paul is talking about in fact, as you sit around the coffee shop, maybe you have had this conversation. You talk about our country and the direction it's going and you think to yourself, man, the country is going to hell in a handbasket. And you look at everybody, everybody else and you see all the things that they're doing and you say, it's a real shame. But Paul says, how about you, old man? You who look down... On other people. And the problem with being that kind of sinner. The one who in their self-righteousness. Contrasts themselves with everybody else. Is that you condemn yourself before God. In the act of condemning other people. Whenever you pass judgment on somebody for their sin. It reveals that you know that it's wrong. Amen. And yet we do some of the same kinds of things, don't we? How many, of you, how many of us have ever had somebody lie to us? You can raise your hand on this. Ever had somebody lie to you? And when, when somebody lies to you, man, it gets under your skin. And you may even tell people, I can't believe so-and-so lied to me. Why, they low down, lying dog. I cannot believe. They lied to me. Okay? Now, don't have to raise your hand on this because I already know the answer. How many of y'all have ever lied? I'll raise my hand. Okay, yes. All of us know that lying is wrong. All of us condemn lying in other people, and yet all of us have lied. So Paul says... What you condemn in other people, you yourselves do. And you, by so doing, condemn yourself before God because you know that what you've done is wrong. We show that we know right from wrong and we have no excuse, therefore, when we stand before God and He calls us to account for our lying tongue or for any other sin that we condemn in others and excuse in ourselves. And that is really the major point of these first several verses. That while the self-righteous might look pretty good on the outside, that is not where God looks. That God looks at the heart and he sees the sins of the self-righteous just as clearly as we see the sins of the hedonistic. And he sees that self-righteous people very often commit some of the same sins they condemn and judge in other people. And so he says in verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice these things, and we know that, don't we? And that's why when people sin against us, we get so offended and why we pass judgment on them. In verse 3 and 4, Paul asks a couple of rhetorical questions, and both of these are meant to under my, uh, to underline and highlight the self-righteous nature of this kind of sinner. In verse 3, he says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? In other words, he's saying, God does not judge on a relative standard, and there is no escape from God's judgment for the self-righteous. In fact, it's what's implied in that question is, is that those who condemn in others what they practice themselves will be judged more strictly because they know and they demonstrate that they know by their judgment that what they've done is wrong. And the second question in verse 4 is very similar. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you repentance, In other words, why do, you know why God doesn't judge us immediately as soon as we sin? Because God is gracious and God is patient. And God forbears giving judgment right away, not because he d- does not care, but because he loves us and he wants us to come to repentance and he wants to give us time during which to do that. I mean, I, for one, am very glad that God did not judge all sinners fully and finally in 1977 because if he had, I would have been lost. And I'll bet many of you are, would be in the same boat and you might be a different year because you might not have been born in 77. But, um, but you are nevertheless glad that God did not judge you as soon as you sinned because, but instead was patient with you to allow you to come to the point where you repented and put your trust in Christ. And he says, you who are self-righteous have forgotten that God's patience is not because he is senile, but because he is loving. And he wants you to come to repentance. Repentance. And when God's judgment does come, it will come impartially. Now, look at verses 5 through 11. That emphasize that point. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourself on the day of God's wrath. Storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also for the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first, and also for the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Verse 5 is a warning. The reality is most people do not use the time that God has given them uh, by His kindness, forbearance, and patience to, in order to repent. They don't do that. They are like the guy who jumps out of a building because he wants to see what it's like to fly. And somebody asks him about... Six floors from the ground. How's it going? It's great so far. (laughs) Okay. Um, The reality is that sinners who do not repent are merely storing up for themselves additional punishment. Like the criminal who has not been caught by the police yet. Yet. But when he is caught, all of his crimes are laid bare before the court. And then sentence comes down. And Paul is saying, whatever the kind of sinner you are, you need to repent. Amen? Whether you are a hedonistic sinner, somebody who is just letting their freak flag fly. Or you are a self-righteous sinner who outwardly looks very good, who walks little old ladies across the street, who gives to the United Way, who does whatever things that we think are good and right and upright. In fact, you may even be a person who comes to church, comes to this church regularly, but you have never repented of your sin. And in the meantime, Paul says, if you have not repented of your sin and come to God through faith in Christ, you are merely storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath when God's judgment does, in fact, fall and his judgment, according to verses six through eleven, is completely impartial. It is according to what each person has done. Let me explain that just to be clear. Can a person go to heaven based on doing good works? No. Okay. Can a person um, earn their way to heaven in any way whatsoever other than faith in Christ? No. What Paul is saying here in this passage, and I don't want anybody to be confused, is this. Is that the amount of reward you have if you are a believer in Christ or the amount of punishment you have if you're an unbeliever in hell is directly tied to the life that you live. And if you are a person who strives after God's heart, who seeks for glory and honor in the kingdom that is to come, who lays up for yourselves treasure in heaven, as Jesus said, with your life, then there is a greater degree of reward awaiting you when you see Jesus. Amen? scripture is very clear on that if on the other hand you are a person who is a rebel and a and someone who has rejected god and fled from him for your entire life and done everything you can to shake your fist at him there is a greater degree of punishment awaiting you in hell and god's judgment is perfectly fair in that and he says it's for the jew first And also for the Gentile. Because I think what he has in mind here in this passage is two kinds of people. The Jews' problem was that they were self-righteous. And they felt that by keeping the law, they would attain to eternal life. And Paul says, no, you won't. And the Gentile's problem is that they didn't know God or care about what he had to say. And they just did whatever they wanted. In whichever category a person fits into, God's judgment will be completely impartial. There is no partiality with Him. Amen? Now, look at verses 12 through 16 with me. We're going to move fairly quickly here through these. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. But the doers of the law that will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires there a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Jesus. Now, whenever you share the gospel with somebody and you tell them that Jesus Christ is the only way, that there is no other road that leads to glory and to the presence of God apart from faith in Jesus, they will often ask you, what about those who have never heard Verses 12 through 16 are God's answer, His inspired, recorded for us answer to that question. What about those who have not heard this? And the the term, the law there, I think is a shorthand way for speaking about the Old Testament, which is about all of the scriptures that exist at the time that Paul is writing Romans. And he's saying, those who have the scriptures and who have an understanding of the Scriptures, will be judged at a higher standard than those without. Amen? Because they knew more about God. And so a person, as an example, who has grown up in a home with the Bible on a shelf, or on a table, or or in their hands, God bless them, who has heard the word of God proclaimed in Sunday school class and Awana and from the pulpit who has watched their parents pray to God who then walks away is ultimately accountable before God for what they know. Amen? Because those who have the scriptures have the enormous privilege of knowing everything that God sees fit for us to know about him because he has written it for us in a book for us to enjoy and to savor and to benefit from. And he's saying, if you've never heard of any of this, God is not so unfair as to judge you by what you do not know. But God will still judge you. By what you do know, because the things, as chapter one told us, the things that can be known about God are enough to hold you accountable. The things that can be known about God are enough to hold you accountable. So if you've never heard or if you have heard, you're accountable before God. And the degree of accountability might vary according to whether you have the scripture or not. But regardless, God has given you a conscience and God has implanted his word in that conscience to guide you from right from wrong. And to the extent that you abide by that, even if you've never heard the gospel, God's judgment will be based on what you knew. It is not those who heard God's word who will be declared righteous in God's sight. That's verse 13. It is those who do what God's word commands who will be declared righteous and escape from judgment. Here's what, here's what these verses are telling us. That God doesn't just see the sins of the hedonist. Amen? He doesn't just see the ones that, that you know, when I was growing up, we kind of had, to, had the list, right? Right? Everybody had their list of sins. We don't go to movies. We don't, we don't drink. And we don't smoke. And we don't chew. And we don't go with girls who do, right? That was the, kind of the, the list. Kind of the, you know you, Everybody kind of had their dirty dozen that you just avoided. And then if you avoided all that, you were good. Right? That isn't true. God looks at the heart. And he looks for more than simply outward obedience, outward conformity to his standard. Amen. And it is those who do God's will who are justified before God. Now, let me get real serious with you. What is ultimately the way to be justified before God? It is to import for yourself a righteousness you do not possess. And the only way to do that is through faith in Christ. Because the only way to be declared righteous in God's sight is to have someone who kept God's law perfectly on your behalf do it for you. Because if it's up to you and me, not only can I not keep the law, uh, I'm in a heap of trouble. I don't even want to keep it. Amen. I need a new heart. To first of all enable me to even want to, and second of all, to transform me such that I am righteous in God's sight when I am unrighteous in my sin. So here's so again, want to be sure to understand these things: that self-righteous re- religiosity will not save you from God's judgment; that being a good person does not save you; your background. And heritage does not save you. You know, the Jews thought that somehow, because they were descendants of Abraham, that they were automatically in as far as God was concerned. In fact, they they actually taught in Paul's day that Abraham sat next to the gates of hell to keep any Jews from ever going in. And what Paul is saying is, no, God's standard is this, that you must be righteous before Him. And it is not simply those who keep the law or those who have the law or those who have heard the law. It's those who do the law and you need a different kind of righteousness than what you currently possess. And the only way we can get it is through Christ. The fact that you're a a child of a preacher or a missionary or descended from a saintly grandfather does not have anything to do with whether or not you know God. And will escape his judgment. All right. Uh, Let me say a couple things here as we wrap this up. If you do not possess today genuine personal faith in Jesus Christ, then God's judgment awaits you. And there will not be an escape. And you will not be able to phone a friend. God's judgment awaits you. And the only escape from it, the only way that you escape, is through faith in Jesus Christ. You need a righteousness better than you can achieve on your own, you need a righteousness that isn't merely external religiosity. You need a heart transplant. You need a Savior. You need one who has perfectly kept God's law on your behalf and through faith in Him declares you righteous in the sight of God. Otherwise, as Paul says, the secrets of your heart will be revealed and laid bare and subject you to God's judgment. And you can fool everybody else on this planet if you're a self-righteous sinner that you know Jesus, but if you don't actually know Jesus, the charade will be over. And brothers and sisters, I don't want that to be reality for anyone that I know and love. Amen. Do not trust in your own righteousness; it will not save you. Knowing lots of Christian ver- verbiage, having memorized a lot of verses, and when you were a kid in Iwana, that will not save you. Only faith in Christ saves. Now, there are also within us, within this room, a great many of us who know and who believe these things in our hearts. And for us, I think there's also encouragement. In these verses, it might be obscured by all the emphasis on judgment, but the encouragement is also there if you look for it. Uh, mixed in among the warnings, what you see, verse 7, our faith in Christ is going to be rewarded. Our faith in Christ is going to be rewarded. I don't know about your experience, but I have I, I have lots of friends who... Um, I'm trying to reach with the gospel and many of them are as lost as they can be and they look at me and they think that I am stupid and backward and ignorant because I continue to cling to Christ. And I keep telling them the only hope for this life that we have and for the next one as well is Christ. And they go, I cannot believe you are still hanging on to that at 43. And I go, I got nothing better. got nothing better. And there isn't anything better than that. And your faith in Christ will be rewarded. Verse 7 and verse 10 tell us honor, glory, peace, eternal life are going to be ours. Amen? Honor, glory, peace, eternal life are going to be ours one day. And we just have to be patient. And we, by the way, will not be condemned at the judgment. We will not experience what unbelievers experience. We will not have all of the secrets of our hearts laid bare and then come under God's condemnation as a result. We are not facing that. We are facing a rich welcome into the kingdom of God's dear Son. We are looking forward to the day when the Master says to us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And there's encouragement here in this too. Even in the midst of all the judgment, you can go, Yes, but I am not going to be there for that. Not because I am good, but because God is good. And because He loves me. And He sent His Son for me. And He laid down His life for me. Christ died in my place. Was raised to new life. He sent the Spirit to save me. And praise, honor, glory, and eternal life are mine. So we have a lot for which to praise God, even as we're reading about his holiness and about the realities of judgment. Amen. Now, uh, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing the doxology together. Um, I want to give you a few words on the doxology. It was written by Bishop Thomas Ken, who was an Anglican. He was the former royal chaplain. Uh, to both Princess Mary and to King Charles II. Uh, But he was a man who was dismissed from that post because he would not countenance immorality in the royal family. Uh, King Charles II wanted to stash his royal mistress at the bishop's house, and he would not stand for it. And so he was replaced and sent off to be a professor at Winchester College. And while he was there, he wrote a hymn book for his students. And the hymn we're about to sing, which we know as the doxology, was originally the closing stanza of two hymns in that hymn book. Uh, One that all the students were to sing at the beginning of the day, as they greeted the Lord, as they woke up. And one that they sang at the end of the day. And the closing stanza of both is what we're about to sing. So let's pray and then we'll sing together. God our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you that though you see all of our sin. Though you see the sins of the hedonist and the sins of the self-righteous equally clearly. And we'll judge impartially, all those who cling to their sin instead of to the Savior. Father, we thank you that we will not be at the judgment, that we will not come under your condemnation, but we will instead receive praise, honor, glory, and eternal life, not because we are good, but because you are, and because you have sent the Savior for us, and we have believed by your grace. And have been redeemed from all of that. And given a righteousness that allows us to enter into your presence. Not from ourselves, but from Christ. And Father, we thank you for the marvelous privilege we have of celebrating these things together. And we pray that we might give you praise from the heart here this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.